Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, formerly the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my goal here is to find the top people in their professions. This could be one in a hundred, one in a thousand people that go above and beyond. They don't just do enough to be licensed. Uh, they they, they want to be really good at what they do, and they are. So my guest today is Jennifer Bomberger. Uh, she's an associate professor at University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. And we're going to be talking about... Uh, microbe and virus interactions it looks like specifically in the respiratory tract so this should be very interesting thanks for coming jennifer how are you doing i'm doing great thank you so much for having me i'm excited to to chat today oh good so tell me a bit about uh, your research in your own words yeah so um so i guess my research is is kind of it's founded under the principle of trying to understand why patients um, get chronic bacterial infections and this is often the patients we're thinking about are patients with um, chronic lung diseases. And so in my lab, we focus a whole lot on cystic fibrosis patients and um, the chronic infections that they develop. And so um, they're very well known to develop a number of different respiratory infections throughout their lives, but by far the most common is um, infections with bacteria named, um, or called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, as well as Staphylococcus aureus. And so we focus a lot primarily on, on Pseudomonas aeruginosa in my lab and, and why these infections are caused um, how they're caused with the goal of trying to prevent them in the future. And so um, it seems like um, when we look at clinical studies, that patients with um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections, that's most correlated with worse lung disease um, in patients and disease progression. And so that's why we're trying to understand why these infections are caused and the goal of trying to stop them. And so... A quick question. Where, where in these lungs do these bacteria hang out? Are they in the... Uh... In the trachea, or are they down the alveoli, or the bronchioles? Yep. So they're um, so they you can find these bacteria um, in the sinuses, which I think we're going to probably touch on a little bit because we've become really interested in, in sinus disease recently. So they're in the sinuses as well as down in the large airways, is where most of the infections in cystic fibrosis patients are in the larger airways, and so um, only in very late disease courses do they end up with um, infections in their alveoli. It's more in the larger airways, so like the bronchioles, a little bit in the trachea as well. And what what does the natural healthy microbiome look like versus the microbiome of you know someone with cystic fibrosis or you know one of these chronic infections? Yeah, so that's a super controversial area. <laughs> so um, this is something um, that, that, that is debated heavily in the field if we have existing microbiomes in our respiratory tract. And so um, I can give my opinion of where I come down on this, but um, you can find people on different sides of this. And so I think if you look at um, it, so, so one thing you have to know kind of before having this conversation is that in cystic fibrosis, one of the, ma the major defects is a defect in this chloride channel called cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, or actually it's an anion channel. So it conducts both chloride and bicarbonate. And what it does is maintains the proper hydration of your airways, which then allows your airways to have um, effective mucosillary clearance. And so you need to have hydration 
so that the cilia that are on your airway epithelial cells can beat and can clear debris and pathogens out of your respiratory tract. And so um, for healthy individuals like you and I, um, we have effective mucillary clearance. Um, if, we, if we inhale either pathogens or pollutants or things into our lungs, the, our respiratory epithelium will use the mucociliary escalator, it's called, to kind of clear the debris up, um, up the respiratory tract, and then we swallow it and everything. If there's any microbes in there, they get killed in the stomach by the acidity. And so um, in healthy individuals, uh, where I come down in the microbiome debate is that um, we're, all, we're constantly micro-aspirating, and we can aspirate bacteria from our mouths, from our upper respiratory tract, and from the environment into our, resp into our um, airways. And that if you sampled us at any second, there'll be a few bacteria in there um, that are just in the process of being cleared out of our respiratory tract, but we have very few bacteria when we get, if we were to sample you or I. Where a cystic fibrosis so patient, um, they can... So you, you don't think that um, there's a, a natural microbiome, microbiome, microbiome or microbial attachment in the lungs? Like, are there bacteria there that are getting something in terms of food? Is there a niche that they're preferentially occupying on a regular basis or it's just temporary? I do not believe there is. I, I believe they're transient. They're transient constituents that are there and they're on their way out. Um, and the nasal, like in your nasal passages, they are definitely have, you are colonized with bacteria there. Um, but those are um, quite different than what we see in the respiratory tract. And so, um, so a lot of the bacteria that we see that we think of as, I guess you could call commensals in the respiratory tract to the microbiome, would be Neisseria species, they would be um, Carini bacteria, Moraxella, things that the, um, actually they tend to be bacteria that we find in the mouth, different streptococci. Um, bacteria that we find in the mouth can be, and we think probably are being aspirated into the respiratory tract and that's in the airways and that's how you see them if you would sample a healthy individual for a microbiome. But the, the bacterial burden is much, much lower than a patient that's actually colonized with the bacteria. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's what I, I interrupted you, but you were probably about to say in CF patients, I guess they can't clear mucus effectively, um, so yeah, the bacteria so a, then take a resident. Correct. Yep. So CF patients, because of this defect in this anion channel, they don't have effective mucosillary clearance, and so when they um, get um, inhale or um, have bacteria in the respiratory tract, they can't clear it. And then because of some of these other defects, then in the mucus, um, the actual, like how the mucus is made up in cystic fibrosis is different than ours. And so for a whole lot of reasons, they can't clear the bacteria out. And then those patients will have, um, they have bacterial burdens up to 10 to the 10th, 10 to the 9th bacteria. So enormous bacterial burdens of their respiratory tracts for decades. And so um, they have real serious, like they have a very clear microbiome where we, ours I think of as a transient, but that is something that's definitely debated in the field and people, different people have different opinions. Well, what's the, the consequence then to people with these chronic, uh, you know, lung infections? Is there any, I mean, is there anything beneficial about it? And if it's negative, what is, what, what are all the, uh, the negative consequences? Like how do they affect the functioning of the lungs and the exchange of air and et cetera? Yep. So um, I don't know that we know of any good re good things <laughs> that come of it. I think it's, it's all negative. And so um, I think the um, when we see 
uh, lung function decline in, in patients. I'm talking now mostly about cystic fibrosis because we know a lot about those patients. Um, if you look at the um, lung function decline in those patients over time, we think it's probably partially contributed by the bacteria themselves and things they're doing, toxins and different um, substances they're secreting that impact the, the health of the respiratory epithelium in your respiratory tract. And then the other kind of other side of that double-edged sword is that um, those bacteria that are then resident are also recruiting in immune cells. Um, and cystic fibrosis patients are known to have really strong inflammatory responses in their respiratory tracts, but they're completely ineffective. And so they recruit in neutrophils and macrophages and these immune cells that um, should in a, that seem to be an appropriate immune response. They should be recruited where you have a bacterial infection happening, but then the immune cells and cystic fibrosis are not effective in actually clearing the infection. And so then they they do um, what they do. They produce toxic substances, which they should be doing to kill bacteria, but it doesn't work properly in cystic fibrosis. And so those toxic substances end up just causing damage to the respiratory tract. And, and eventually you have um, scarring and tissue damage in the lung. And that's caused um, probably as much by the immune response as by the bacteria, but the bacteria are the ones that have recruited that immune response in. And so um, those infections um, are really problematic for patients. And so... Um, and then they, they have these infections for decades, and so the bacteria we know evolve and, and really become fine-tuned to living and persisting in that respiratory tract environment. And so they, they become very, very hard to clear with our current therapeutics. Well, what about um, fungi, protists, and then especially, you know, bacteriophages? Are you looking at those, the presence of those and their interactions? So we are looking at, um, we are not looking at a number of those other um, microbial constituents at this point, but my laboratory looks at, um, we're starting to, to look a little bit at bacteriophage, but more therapeutic phage and how they change the microbial communities in the respiratory tract. But our main interest is in how um, respiratory viral infections, so an acute viral infection, how that might change the respiratory microbiome. And so that's been the major goal of my lab since I started my lab. So fungal infections, I think, are going to be turn out to be really important in CF, but that's not something we're studying. There are great labs doing that work, just not us. So how does a viral infection of the lung <coughs> respiratory tract look different from a bacterial one? Um, that's an interesting question. So, um, so I guess when you get a, a respiratory wimp, um, any individual, healthy or, or with chronic lung disease, gets a respiratory viral infection, it triggers a different type of immune response. And so we have these things called pattern recognition receptors that are in our um, immune cells and in our respiratory epithelial cells that <clears throat> their whole role is to de detect patterns from microbes. And so they can detect what sort of microbe is infecting, and then they trigger different types of immune responses that are supposed to be tailored to, to killing that particular type of infection that they've detected. So if they detect an extracellular bacterial infection, they respond one way that would be able to clear an extracellular bacterial infection, um, presumably by calling in the right types of immune cells to clear that infection. If they detect an intracellular infection, Sometimes those, those things are triggered by um, trigger different types of, of responses where you would want to either kill that particular epithelial cell so that that microbe can't replicate or th there's very different responses that happen. And so because respiratory viruses need the um, respiratory epithelium to propagate, it's kind of when, you de when the host detects a respiratory viral infection, they initiate a specific um, immune response that normally shuts down um, gene expression and or shuts down pr um, protein translation in the epithelium partially so the virus can't make more virus particles but it also causes um, systems to be put in place where 
Um, you start sequestering nutrients because um, microbes need nutrients to replicate. So the, the host um, should be um, sequestering nutrients um, to prevent further infections. And so there's a cascade of events that happen when you detect a respiratory viral infection um, that allows the host to try to contain that infection. What, what do you mean? What's, what's sequestering nutrients? The epithelial cells? and for what? The epithelial cells. The epithelial cells are sequestering nutrients. And so nutrients like, um, like amino acids or like um, metals, like iron. Iron is a cofactor. It, iron is of particular interest to our lab, which I can tell you more about. But um, iron is an important cofactor for enzymes in our body that, that they need to function. And so the host and bacterial enzymes also need iron. So iron is a major source of competition between bacteria and the host. Um, and so that's one thing that can be um, competed for during a microbial infection. Well, microbial infection or viral infection? Sorry, so that the, the iron example that I was giving is for a, is for a bacterial infection. Okay, uh, so if, if there's a bacterial infection, at least so far to me, it makes sense that you know the cells would sequester certain nutrients because then they get them and the bacteria don't. You know, to starve them out. Mm -hmm. With viruses, um, what, what would be the point of sequestering nutrients? Is it because that ends the up virus, being more uh, of an energetic? Sorry, that becomes more of an energetic. So normally metabolism changes in a way. So that's slightly different. I was I, maybe I was broadly explaining <laughs> nutritional immunity for lots of different types of microbes. For viruses, it normally tends to be changes in metabolism in the host cell that kind of and again, like I said, they end stopping translation to try to stop like processes in the host cell that allow the virus to replicate. Oh, okay, but. Um... So it's primarily a uh, defense against replication, but are there any other kinds of defenses when there's a viral infection? Um, so sometimes there's changes in the host cell. So it, it depends on the virus. So some of the, um, so one of the things I guess I should explain at the beginning, um, one, when the host epithelium detects a respiratory viral infection, it initiates a, a signaling cascade. It's called um, a cytokine called interferon. And that interferon is, um, elicits a signaling cascade in the host cell, which we call the antiviral program. And so it turns on hundreds of genes in the host cell that then allow the host cell to kind of start um, preparing to, to, um, to defend against a viral infection. So depending on what the virus's uh, replication mechanism is, um, the host often, uh, one of the mechanisms they could do, I can give an example, would be you would change lipid metabolism. So for instance, if the virus needed um, host lipids to be able to form an envelope or something to be able to actually be secreted, the host can then um, manipulate lipid biosynthesis so that those lipids are no longer available for the virus. And often there is a competition. The virus often is co-opting those mechanisms to try to make more lipids. And it's, it's kind of a battle between the host and the, and the virus to try to um, make what the, the virus trying to make what it needs and the host trying to not make those things to try to prevent against the infection. Well, if the, for instance, the epithelial cells are doing this, um, where's the communication happening to signal them to know what to do? Is it happening where, you know, are the immune cells, I guess, eating some of the viruses and then they're communicating through extracellular vesicles to the epithelial cells, here's what to do? Or, you know, how do you think this, this knowledge transfer is happening? Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know that we know entirely how this knowledge transfer is happening. There is definitely so we think of the epithelium as normally being one of the first for in the respiratory tract. 
the epithelium is often the site of a lot of um, respiratory viruses, their site of replication. And so the respiratory epithelium is typically where these viruses will be initially detected. And then they will, the epithelium then will send out signals to, to, for, to other cells. And so one of those signals is interferon. So it makes the cytokine interferon that can communicate with immune cells and it can communicate to other epithelial cells to kind of put the whole epithelium on lockdown sort of to know that there's an infection around. So cytokines are one important way it does that. There is this idea of um, immunoeducation or um, communication through extracellular vesicles. And so um, this is one potential mechanism by which the host reaches out to tell other cells what's going on in the host cell. There's been interesting um, studies on that, not, not work that my lab has done particularly in that area. Um, we do have an interest in extracellular vesicles and how the respiratory epithelium can communicate to bacteria or how bacteria actually probably are co-opting this host communication mechanism. Um, and, and that interaction, I think, is interesting. But for the immune cell communication, that's something that's still being worked on um, in the respiratory right, right. tract, but is likely a mechanism for communication based on what we know from other mucosal sites. So what happens now if a CF patient, they have a persistent bacterial infection and the bacteria just you know they attract bacteriophages that are trying to prey on them now you have you know a persistent viral component you know supposedly only attacking the bacteria and you have a persistent bacterial component can you look at the immune response and see if there's a signal there that that says you know the host recognizes that there is a persistent viral threat or that there are viruses there even though they may not be attacking the host cells? Um, so I, I think, um, are you distinguishing a, a mammalian respiratory virus from a bacteria, like a bacterial virus, like a bacteriophage, or are you using that um, virus term interchangeably, just so I understand what yeah, the question yeah. is? Yeah, no, no, it's fine. I'll be more specific. So if I have CF and I have a persistent bacterial infection, those bacteria are going to attract bacteriophages, you know, viruses that will prey on them. I'm sure naturally mm -hmm. there'll be at least some so even if those viruses don't affect the host, you know, they're certainly going to kill off a lot of the bacteria that are inside the person, the CF. But does the person themselves recognize that, ooh, there's viruses here, even though those viruses aren't attacking, you know, my cells, they're still attacking bacteria, but they're still there, they're still present. And then does the host prepare any defenses against them, or are they invisible to the host because they can recognize somehow, oh, these viruses are not going to hurt us, we don't care. That's an interesting question. Yeah, so that is um, a very current and new area of interest in my laboratory is trying to understand, does the host actually recognize um, bacteriophage that are in the respiratory tract? And so we are still in early days of our studies, but I can tell you what other folks have done. And so um, there's a really nice paper um, out of Paul Boyke's lab at Stanford. And so they're looking at, um, their particular interest is in um, filamentous phage. And so these are phage that are actually promoting pseudomonas biofilms, but they are um, bacteriophage that are in the respiratory tract. And they are able to be detected, they believe, from immune circulating or immune cells in the respiratory tract and um, initiate um, immune signaling. So um, they, can, they, they can be detected and they can trigger immune responses in the host. Um, so that's something I think we are super interested in, but we are in very early days of trying to start those studies to try to understand. Um, so it's been shown for filamentous phage that are made by bacteria. We're interested in lytic phage. So these phage that we're treating to patients 
are those um, phage that we're putting in the respiratory tract of patients to kill their bacteria, are they detected by the host and do they trigger some kind of immune response that could be either protective or not protective, we don't know. And so um, those are studies that we're just starting right now in our laboratory. So it's a great, great question and um, too early to, to talk about publicly <laughs> to say the answer fine. yet. So I yeah, think- no, that's fine. <clears throat> well, um, you know, if someone has CF and you do find a phage that kills the bacteria, the pseudomonas originalis, whatever kind of pseudomonas they are, then I would guess you still have the problem of getting them out of the person's respiratory tract, but maybe there's mechanical vibrators that, you know, have the person cough up a whole bunch of mucus and that work. Like, you know, is there a problem even if you're able to kill those bacteria? Yeah, so I think that that's a great question and we don't know. So I think there's some things we still don't know. So we don't know. Um, so there's been some studies out of several different laboratories. We're collaborating for our work with um, Paul Turner and John Koff at Yale, who's been doing some of this work with um, giving pseudomonas bacteriophage to patients in their CF clinic, and they published some of this work. Um, but they've seen, seen efficacy in treating patients, which is really exciting. Uh, we've got these patients that have incredibly multi-drug resistant infections with pseudomonas originosa, and we don't know, there are no antibiotics left to treat them. And so it's really important to come up with these new therapies. And so they've seen really exciting results in, in, in reducing bacterial burden in these patients. But um, from the microbiology side, we don't know if these phages are actually able to penetrate into the bacteria. So one thing I guess we should introduce um, in this conversation is the concept of bacterial biofilms. And so bacteria growing in these bacterial or microbial communities um, in the respiratory tract, we think bacteria, when patients, like I said, have these infections for decades with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, we think one of the reasons they become, become so antibiotic resistant is they grow as these bacterial biofilms. And so these are communities or aggregates of bacteria that when they grow together, um, they change their gene expression, they make matrix, they become incredibly antibiotic resistant, and um, our antimicrobials no longer work well on them. And so um, by making this matrix, it kind of gives them the structure of this little ball of bacteria, sort of, is what they look like in the respiratory tract. Um, by making this matrix, they make, uh, make it very hard for a lot of antibiotics and things to penetrate. They can put charge on this matrix so that things can't penetrate well into it. And so um, what one thing we don't know, and we've been talking um, is what, something we would like to study is um, we have models in my laboratory where we can grow these bacterial biofilms on respiratory epithelial cells and use imaging to kind of watch what the, bio, the dynamics of those bac the biogenesis of those biofilms and then go apply treatments and try to look at how it changes the biofilms. We would like to know when you treat with phage therapy, is it actually penetrating into those biofilms? So often patients aren't completely clearing their infection. And so we don't know if the phage are not penetrating or like you said, do they penetrate and we just can't clear everything out of the respiratory tract. Um, there are some of these things that we just, we still don't know. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's true. I forgot that the, the bacteria <laughs> form biofilms. Mm -hmm. Have you, have so that's you been actually able a to, major interest. Yeah. yeah. Has anyone been able to, um, you know, in the lab in a dish, set up epithelial cells and have these bacteria grow in them and observe what the biofilm looks like or, you know, do a biopsy and somehow preserve the structure of the biofilms that come out and see what that tells you? Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's a great. So, um, so folks have, um, for quite a few years, we've gotten clinical samples from patients and, and been able to look and see these aggregates forming in the respiratory tract of patients. And so, um, Pradeep Singh, Neil Toybee, Pete Greenberg, we, these studies have been have been shown for a while now. 
Um, unfortunately, there are not good animal models for growing these chronic pseudomonas or for um, giving us chronic pseudomonas infection in like a mouse or a rat or, or these animal models that we can use in the laboratory. And so, um, so during my postdoc, um, I did my postdoc training at um, Dartmouth Medical School, and um, there I helped set up a system where we could grow these bacterial biofilms in association with airway epithelial cells. And so, um, so my training is actually as an epithelial cell biologist, and at Dartmouth is kind of when I fell in love with microbiology and decided to kind of marry the two in my current in my lab for my own independent program. And so, um, so we grow human airway epithelial cells, we can grow them as primary cells, which means we can take patient tissue and culture the cells um, in a way that they make cilia, and the cilia beat, like I was describing, mucociliary clearance, those cilia can beat in our airway cell cultures, so we can um, grow them in a way that they look very similar and behave very similar to what they would be doing in the respiratory tract. And then we've developed models where we can then add bacteria to it, either a single bacteria or in my laboratory, we're really interested in polymicrobial interactions and viral bacterial interactions. So we can combine lots of different microbes in this system to allow us to try to kind of mimic what's going on in cystic fibrosis and then try to figure out um, why pseudomonas becomes dominant or the bacterial biofilms form or why they're resistant to antimicrobials. A lot of those questions that we have, we can model in these in vitro systems in our laboratory. So, okay, what's the, uh, well, I, I've been asking all my questions, but um, what are some of the major questions that you have that you're trying to solve, if I haven't covered them? Yeah, so um, so, so one of our major questions is um, kind of what we started the lab with, and it's one of those things in science that the more questions you answer, you just have 10 more questions for every one you answer. So, um, so we started the laboratory with this observation I wanted to know why pseudomonas formed these chronic infections and how biofilms got formed. And in looking at the clinical literature, we saw an abundance of literature that showed that when patients got, like they converted from having acute occasional infections with pseudomonas to a chronic infection, meaning they had the same infection for decades, um, that always seemed to correlate with right around, or very, very commonly it correlated with when patients had an acute respiratory viral infection. And so um, this happened in, this was shown in many studies, but um, because of our limitation of not having good model systems, um, not many people had actually studied what this interaction might mean. And so because I had this system um, where I could grow these biofilms on respiratory epithelial cells, I thought I could actually maybe ask some questions about, does a respiratory viral infection change the host environment in some way that allows bacteria to form these chronic infections? And so that was the, the big question we started the lab with. and um, we're still studying it, <laughs> so um, I think there's lots of things we're going to need to figure out, but um, we've decided we've kind of dug pretty deep on mechanisms of how this is happening. And so what would the answer is, yes, respiratory viral infections do promote the, the bio, um, biogenesis of pseudomonas biofilms, and they also promote Staph aureus biofilms, and so we think um, this could be a general mechanism whereby if you have bacteria in the right place at the right time in your respiratory tract, like if you're a CF patient that does not have effective mucosillary clearance, and you get a viral infection, the conditions change in the respiratory tract in such a way that now um, the conditions are in place to allow the bacteria to get a foothold and start making biofilms. And once they get to a certain state, now our antimicrobials are no longer effective and they kind of have gotten their foothold. And so we've spent a whole lot of time trying to ask, what is happening during that respiratory viral infection that allows the bacteria to get a foothold. And so um, one of the big things that we're excited about is this idea of, and I started touching on it a little bit at the beginning, of nutritional immunity. And so thinking about 
um, the host's ability to sequester nutrients. And it appears that that's getting dysregulated during the viral infection and there's nutrients available to the bacteria that shouldn't be there. And the bacteria um, can acquire those nutrients, which is iron in this case, and form biofilms. And so that's kind of led us down now a number of other new questions of exactly how is the iron being trafficked and how is it being dysregulated? Why is it being dysregulated? And then does this provide um, some way to think about new therapies. So there's iron chelators that are FDA approved. So could we think about using some of those types of therapies as a way of trying to prevent these co-infections? And so that's kind of so, one mechanistic. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so has it, has it been noticed that, um, you know, CF patients are more prone to viral infections of the respiratory tract or less prone or no difference yep. and, you know, vice versa. If someone gets a viral infection, are they then more predisposed to getting a bacterial one? Yes. So, um, so CF patients don't get any more frequent respiratory viral infections than, than a healthy individual, but when they get them, they're really bad. So where you and I would have a cold, CF patients often will be hospitalized and they'll have really long, prolonged viral infections. Um, and then the correlation between respiratory viral infections um, most of the correlation has been made with um, the development of chronic infections. So that is a very um, well-documented thing in cystic fibrosis. So when patients get respiratory viral infections, um, they tend to convert to a chronic bacterial infection. And that's often seen with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but that's also the most common bacteria they have. So that, there's some of, um, there, that, that could be part of the reason for that correlation. Hmm. And when um, biofilms form, how <laughs> fast do they form in someone? Does it does it probably happen, I don't know, within a few days or immediately, or does it take months or years? What's been observed? But in patients, I don't think we know. There's a, so patients will go through, so in patient, when a CF patient is born, for Pseudomonas aeruginosa at least, they'll culture negative. When they're first born, they'll culture negative. So then pretty early in life, many patients will get a Pseudomonas infection, but um, the physicians and um, infection control is they treat it pretty aggressively. So then they'll then go through uh, a number of years where they have kind of acute infections and it's able to be cleared with antibiotics and um, they kind of come in, so the infections come and go. And then at some point they will transition to what we consider a chronic infection. And that's when, when they're going into clinic, they're repeatedly testing positive for Pseudomonas. And if you do, uh, we've now, since we have this um, next generation sequencing kind of revolution that's happened, if you sequence their isolates over time, that's a, it's a clonal lineage of Pseudomonas. So it's the same Pseudomonas that they've had when they start repeatedly testing positive, it's the same Pseudomonas. And so we think that then it is a chronic infection. Mm, okay, got it. And then those infections are the ones I said that when they, like we think at that point, the bacteria are in biofilms, but we don't know how fast that actually occurs. So when we study it in our epithelial model, because we do live cell imaging, we can watch the process. Within four to six hours, we have biofilms forming that are, um, that we can't solubilize enough tobermycin or antibiotics to kill. So, um, so we know it, it can happen very quickly, but that's in a cell culture model without, um, in that particular model, there's no immune cells there. So there, there is some caveats to that, but I, I do think it can happen very quickly. It's just the conditions have to be right to allow that to happen. And so we think what, what the respiratory virus infection is doing is allowing those conditions to be right. Um, what if there was a mouse model where you had a mouse that had this, this uh, pseudomonas that was characteristic of when it's in a chronic infected state and then somehow either had a healthy mouse aspirate that or put it into their respiratory tract. Has that been tried to see if they uh, immediately get 
a chronic infection or if it's, you know, curable other ways. I don't even know if this happens in mice or community. So the, the problem is we can't get it to happen in mice. <laughs> so um, I think there are, um, so for some things, I think mice and small rodent models can be really good models for studying human disease. I think for a lot of respiratory infections, they're not the best model, and particularly for trying to study chronic bacterial infections. And so um, bacteria in Pseudomonas specifically does not form chronic infections in rodent models. And so um, some people have gone and they've, they've embedded bacteria in auger beads, which is one method that's used. Um, that doesn't necessarily replicate what's happening in patients and that we do, patients do not have auger in the respiratory tract and the bacteria um, there's been concern in the field that when you put bacteria in an auger bead, they don't necessarily behave like biofoam bacteria. They just behave as bac planktonic bacteria that are now growing in an auger bead. And so they don't really replicate the behaviors that they're actually doing in, um, in the respiratory tract of a patient um, with cystic fibrosis. And so, um, so we think that probably um, these mouse models, just um, until there's some changes in the way um, either some genetic changes that we figure out to be able to change the mice in a way that makes them more amenable. They're just not a good model for studying these chronic bacterial infections. Okay, well, fine. <clears throat> what about in the, uh, in the lab? Have you tried to culture, let's say, uh, you know, pseudomonas that was in biofilm form and then expose it to naive epithelial cells and see if it forms a biofilm faster or if its gene expression is different? Um, we have not done that exact experiment, but we're about to embark on, I think, maybe where you're headed with your question is that some of our questions are, um, we're really interested in how microbial communities evolve over time and if bacteria get better at making biofoams, which I think is maybe sort of what you're asking. And so, um, so we have models yeah. now set up that we're starting in the lab to look at if we repeatedly grow biofoams with the same bacteria again and again, do they evolve mutations to get better at making biofilms? And if so, what are those mutations and can we learn something from those mutations? And so um, a colleague of ours here at the University of Pittsburgh, his name's Vaughn Cooper, he uses a, a bead model where he has a polystyrene bead that he has Pseudomonas or Burkholderia senosipatia. He grows biofilms on those beads and he packages it daily for, for weeks and months. And they look at kind of how did the bacteria evolve to make better biofilms over time? And they've done really elegant ecology studies trying to, to map how, what are the mutations that evolve over time to make the bacteria better at making biofilms. And so they've gotten really exciting insight on this bead model. We're now working with them to use our cell culture model to try to mimic even better what the host conditions are. And if we can mimic the respiratory mucosal kind of interface even better, what are those first uh, mutations that the bacteria need to be able to try to make a biofilm in the host? And so, um, so those are studies that are underway in the lab that we're really excited about. So hopefully people will hear about oh, that okay. soon. <laughs> yeah, you put it in a better way than I did. But, oh, great. You've been listening well, only, to the uh, Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. There's millions of more questions to ask and answer. But, if you uh, like what you hear, you know, be sure to review and time. subscribe we'll to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun. Thank you for, for taking the time and talking.